Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Do Theology Reacts. And once again, you only have one half of the Do Theology team. Ken right now is at a Bible camp, and he's been, like you know, very, very busy this summer. And so he is uh, unavailable to record at the moment. But uh, soon enough, you'll be, you'll be seeing some of our interviews that have been recorded, and some of our conversations that have been recorded, uh, where he's in his new house, and he's got his new setup and everything. That'll happen soon enough. But uh, for now, it's just me. And uh, I want to just take a few minutes to examine how our brothers who are covenant theologians talk about covenant theology, talk about covenants, and talk about dispensationalists, us. I don't know if you include yourself in that us or not. Probably not. <laughs> Guys like me, all right, who are dispensational in nature. Uh, shouldn't say in nature, in theology. Well, um, th- this is Sam Renahan. It's an interview that he did with the London Lyceum from some time ago. And I have probably been recommended Sam Renahan's book more than anybody else when it comes to studying covenant theology, his, uh, his book From Shadow to Substance. Now, there's another book that he wrote recently, more recently, I believe, and I can't think of the title, but this was after From Shadow to Substance came out, and uh, he's being interviewed about Baptist covenant theology on this podcast. And so um, the way I found this, actually, is because I've been recommended Sam Renahan's stuff so much, I just went on to Podcast Addict, that's the app I use for podcasts, and I searched Sam Renahan, and I just looked through the episodes where his name was mentioned or featured, and I found this one, and I thought, Baptist Covenant Theology, that sounds like a, an episode where they're going to sum things up. So um, I did listen to like the first half of it so far. I'm only about halfway through it. But at the beginning, there were enough things mentioned uh, that were asserted and, and things that were said that I thought, you know, this would just be helpful to pause and interact with this a little bit. So that's what we're going to do here today. And they don't have a video version of this. So we are just going to be using, uh, right now it's, I think this is Buzzsprout and, uh, we're going to be just playing the audio off of their page. But here at the beginning, you'll hear the hosts ask Sam a question or a couple questions, I think. And then, uh, I'll pause it here after about a minute and 10 seconds. And I am playing it at 1.25 speed on my end. So if you're listening to me at 1.25 speed, I believe that makes them 1.5 speed. You can do the math. All right. So let's just jump into this and I'll pause here after he gives uh, the initial answer to this first set of questions. Well, I don't. Can we just like lay the, the groundwork for those who may not be familiar with this topic at all or or may have just a cursory level understanding of it. So maybe what is a covenant to begin with for the very uninitiated? And then for those who are a little bit more familiar, just give us a little bit, I guess, of an idea of what covenant theology is. A covenant, a simple definition of a covenant is a commitment guaranteed by threats. Uh, some people call it a sanctioned commitment or a commitment with sanctions, which means you can have an agreement with someone about something. Okay, let's let's do this, or I will and you will do that. Uh, but we've just got an agreement. Covenants are, are more formal and they are protected by threats i will do this or else some kind of consequence happens to me you will do this or else some kind of consequence happens to you Uh, and so sometimes 
other people talk about oaths. You, you make a promise that is that must be performed or there's some kind of consequence. So the, the terminology can, can vary, but the idea is a commitment that's guaranteed by threats. All right. So just pausing there, I already have uh, some questions. And of course, you know, this is a, an interview from, I think, about two years ago. Uh, these are just questions that I'm asking to the air and you're hearing them and, and here, here they are. Does this leave room for unconditional covenants? Cause it sounds to me like it doesn't, it sounds to me like germane to a covenant part and parcel to covenants themselves is a condition or a set of conditions. He said commitments that are guaranteed by threats is the definition of a covenant. So that means, if that's the definition, I believe that would have to mean that there is no case in which a, uh, a covenant could be made without any, any conditions. Because the, the threats, I think, hint at, uh, or maybe directly speak to conditions themselves. Uh, but I think perhaps more, even more problematic from the covenant theology side of things, if you're a little bit familiar with covenant theology, you'll know that their first covenant is a covenant that was made in eternity past between Father, Son, and Spirit, or at least Father and Son, but I think most would say Father, Son, and Spirit, called the covenant of redemption. How could the three persons of the Godhead enter into a covenant if a covenant by definition has threats uh, I can't imagine the father or son or spirit threatening any other person in the Godhead. I just think that that's really problematic. In fact, I would say that's more problematic than the whole eternal functional subordination conversation. Um, boy, to, to, to think that uh, father, son, or spirit threatened one of the other persons of the Godhead, that is, uh, that's just very interesting. But anyway... Uh, we will continue to listen for another uh, 45 seconds or so. Now he's going to go on to answer, what is covenant theology? And covenant theology is a theological discipline that, that looks at the scriptures and sees that God has related to man through covenants throughout history, and that it's not just because that's how chose, God chose how to relate to man, but it was also how he brought about his purpose of salvation in Christ for all those who come to him by faith. So covenant theology is concerned with the, hist the progressive history of redemption and the unity of God's plan and how that all relates uh, together, as well as some of the more systematic details of, of covenants themselves. But I think covenant theology is, is, much, is very broadly concerned with both history and system. All right. So that, to me, is a little complicated of an answer. I know he's trying to give a, a summary statement. How do you give a summary statement for an entire systematic theology or, or view of systematic view of the scriptures? Um, that's a tall order for anybody. But to me, that was a little hard to grasp, and it would be natural to compare it against a different view of scripture. Like, okay, um, that's a summary statement of covenant theology. Well, well how is that any different than, say, dispensationalism? Well, glad you asked. So as I'm thinking about this, it seems that most people, I guess, would put covenant theology on one side of a spectrum and put what's called dispensationalism on another side of the spectrum. What, is there a helpful way to think about the, the main differences between those two systems? We might be able to give a variety of legitimate answers to that question. I think that one which 
runs the risk of maybe stereotyping or overgeneralizing, but one, one would be that covenant theology sees a singular unified plan uh, developing from the garden to, from creation to consummation, really. Whereas it's my understanding that a more dispensational view, although there would be variations among them, would, would see a sort of one track plan going one way for a certain people and then another track plan going another way for another people, Jews and, and believers and, and such things. And so there's more discontinuity. There isn't quite that singular unity that covenant theology of both Baptist and Pado-Baptist persuasions uh, understand. So maybe you had something else in mind, but that, that would be my answer. Okay. Um, well, that's his answer. I do appreciate that he acknowledged that it ran the risk of being not a good answer, because it wasn't a good answer, but uh, but that was his answer. Now, there is a nugget of legitimacy in what he's saying, of course. Uh, in most ways that you could define it, dispensationalism does see more discontinuity than covenant theology. Now, there are some ways where covenant theology sees discontinuity, where dispensationalism sees continuity, particularly with the covenants. But that's a different conversation, uh, kind of. It's just a conversation I'm not going to get into today. And I, I have to also say, I understand that the history of dispensationalism is not very clean or pretty. Now, I think Darby gets beaten up on more than he probably deserves. Uh, but was he a perfect guy? Was he the, the best theologian of all history uh, that could ever be chosen to lead a movement? No. And, and there's some weird stuff. I mean, and then you start getting into the Schofield territory, and just some weird stuff was said. Now, was there some really good and helpful stuff? Yes. Was there also some weird stuff? That bordered on heresy sometimes? Yeah. Yep, there was. But that's the same with every theological movement of history, isn't it? Uh, you look at Martin Luther's life, and it's like, were there better theologians to lead the th third biggest wave of... Uh, the, the third wave and the biggest wave of the Reformation? Uh, yeah, there probably were, <laughs> okay? But um, that's just what it is. Pe people are falling, okay? So I, I recognize, you know, he's saying, look, I'm on the spot here. There, this runs the risk of just being a bad answer, uh, and this is my answer. But his, and, and I recognize, too, that dispensationalism historically has undergone some revisions, and uh, those revisions are, a lot of them, for the better. But, but the answer he gave was basically, look, covenant theology sees a unified plan of God and dispensationalism is, sees discontinuity in the plan of God and you end up with, I don't know if he said two, but basically two plans of God, a plan for, of God for Israel, a plan of God for Gentiles in the church. And uh, perhaps there are some really historic, antiquated versions of dispensationalism that worded things in an unhelpful way that would lead people to think that. In fact, I would go as far to say is there there are some of those versions that exist in history not perhaps but there are but in his answer he gave no details of what this meant and it really sounded kind of scary i mean if you were to to just kind of follow his line of thinking in your own mind as you're kind of conjuring up what that means you could be led to think that oh well dispensationalists believe that you end up with two ways of salvation two different ways of salvation 
dispensationalism, uh, that system believes that basically um, you've got maybe two different Jesuses, two different new heavens and new earths, that these are two different plans for two different people that take you in two different directions. But that's not true at all. And so it it was almost worded in a way that was like, yeah, they they don't really know uh, what, what what God's plan is, but in covenant theology, we recognize the one unified plan of, of God. And of course, in his answer, he didn't mention covenants at all and how dispensationalists cherish the covenants and how the covenants are central to the entire system of theology. And and I'll just give a, a brief note on that before we go back to the audio and, and finish it out. Um, d- dispensationalists see covenants in the scripture. Okay, it's not that we see dispensations and not covenants. It's that we do see covenants, and those covenants actually kind of inform us of the flow of history and and what God is doing in the world and and what God expects of man. And we see covenants where God says, I'm making a covenant, whereas in covenant theology, they have three main covenants, the covenant of redemption that I already talked about, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace— those three covenants are not talked about in Scripture, so they have three. They have only three covenants, um, with sub covenants underneath that. I don't want to say they don't recognize the Noahic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, but they have these three overarching covenants, and none of those three are actually mentioned in Scripture. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, see covenants only where they're mentioned in Scripture. Okay, and we understand that covenants are not always conditional. Sometimes they are. I mean, the Mosaic Covenant is a great example, right? If you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then that will happen. That's conditional. But if we go back to the Abrahamic Covenant, for example, that starts essentially in Genesis 12 and then gets more explicit in the chapters that follow, the teen chapters of Genesis, we see God making a promise to Abraham that is unconditional about the blessing to the world that was going to come through his line, the fact that he would have a line, that that generations would come after him and that many peoples would come from him, and that there was a specific land given to his descendants. He was told, actually, you're not going to inherit this land. Your your family's going to be enslaved for a few hundred years, and uh, then they're going to come back, and they're going to enjoy part of this land. And when they did that in the book of Joshua, we see in the book of Joshua that they only got to enjoy part of the land. And never in Israel's history did the descendants of Abraham enjoy the fullness of the land that was given to Israel. And specifically, I mean, just another note on this land. This is an unconditional promise. God not putting any stipulations on Abraham. He says, this is a forever promise. This land belongs to your descendants forever. He puts a timestamp on it. And that timestamp is forever. He puts an expiration date on it, and that expiration date is never, okay? Um, So it belongs to them. And some people will say, well, what about circumcision? Didn't Abraham have to be circumcised? Didn't his descendants have to be circumcised? Isn't that his part of the deal? Well, they did have to be circumcised. That comes in chapter 17 after the forever promise is made. And we learn that 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 circumcision was just a sign of the unconditional covenant. It was a seal of the unconditional covenant, Paul says that in Romans 4. It was a sign and a seal. It wasn't upholding his part of the deal. It was a sign of what God had unconditionally promised. Okay, that's our view of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Well, what happens as a dispensationalist reads Scripture is that we are now nailed down by that plain teaching of God. And if you want more uh, about what we believe about just covenants from a general perspective, I recommend you read Paul Henneberry's book, uh, latest book on covenants, Biblical Covenantalism, Paul Henneberry. Or you could listen to our part one, part two interview with him on this show. We are nailed down by that covenant. God has said plainly, this is what's going to happen. This is the promise to you. And, and as interpreters of Scripture, as we're reading through the Bible, we are on a leash then that is tied back to this covenant. And we can't pull that, that pin, that nail, that, that spike out of the ground and go put it in a different place. God has nailed it there. And so no matter what else we read in Scripture, nothing's going to contradict this fact that God has given this unconditional forever promise to Abraham and his descendants. Nothing's ever going to change that because this is just plain speech delivered over to this man, Abraham, for his descendants as a forever unconditional promise. We can't, we can't change that. And so as you, as you approach Scripture with that mindset and you read Scripture progressively, knowing that what is revealed later never contradicts what comes before but builds on that, you end up with a dispensational framework, okay? It, it's a hermeneutics issue, which um, it's interesting in this interview, uh, Sam Renahan is asked about hermeneutics, and he dismisses it at first, and they do come back to it later, but he doesn't see, I don't think, the overarching theology, covenant theology or dispensationalism, as a matter of hermeneutics. When I see it, it's totally a matter of hermeneutics. It's all about how you read the scripture. Okay, well... Um, I talked for a long time there, and you may have forgotten. Sam Renahan had, get, had given an answer about what dispensationalism is. He said it runs the risk of being a not very good answer, and I just told you why I, I didn't think it was a good answer. Now I want to listen for another minute, 10 seconds or so, and uh, as they finish up their conversation about dispensationalism. No, I think that's that's pretty helpful um, in thinking the, di the difference, I guess, uh, about the plan. So, And I guess some dispensationalists of the progressive variety would – I mean, I don't know, maybe they would say that there was one plan and then that plan, I guess, changed from old to new covenant in, in a way. I, sometimes it seems that there are so many varieties, it's, it's kind of difficult to bucket them all into one way of understanding things. Right. I think that anyway. Paul, yeah, Paul in the book of Acts and in his epistles, he, he talks about the mystery unveiled. And there there's always, from from before creation, I mean, that's, that language doesn't work, but God has only ever had one plan. And, and what the Jews are seeing in the New Testament mm -hmm. after Christ's ascension, what the Jews are seeing, well, in Jesus' life and in his, after his ascension, all of that is not a detour. It is the destination of the Old Testament. It's what Israel was driving towards the whole time. And our dispensational brethren would, would probably disagree about how that's understood. Yes, we would. Yes, we would. So that's it. After that, they move on from dispensationalism. and that's all they say about comparing. Well, that's all they say about defining covenant theology and then comparing it to dispensationalism. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty poor effort, uh, though perhaps it just wasn't the focus of the interview. I thought those were very important questions. Uh, I wish they would have gone into more detail about that. Well, you, you have the host. I don't know which of the two hosts mentioned this, but he said, basically, look, you've got so many versions of dispensationalism, you can't keep track. You don't know what they believe because they're all over the place, which I find interesting. He said progressive dispensationalism by name. There are really only three main camps of dispensationalism. You have classic, revised, and progressive. 
there aren't very many classic guys out uh, writing books and stuff anymore. The majority fall into the revised or the uh, progressive camps. And so you basically have two main types uh, that if you understand the core of dispensationalism and then the two or three things that separate progressive from revised, you, you, you got it. It's not that complicated. Whereas later in this interview, they start talking about the different covenant theologians uh, and the different views they take on a variety of different things. And my goodness, it makes your head spin. So um, a, a bit disingenuous to say dispensationalism is complicated and implying that uh, perhaps covenant theology is very unified. Uh, I, in all camps, you're going to find people who disagree with people on stuff. Uh, but something that Sam Renahan said there at the end is that the first coming of Christ was the apex and the ultimate fulfillment, the destination of everything that's happening in the Old Testament. And uh, that's just wrong and and just needs to be said plainly that that's really, really, really bad Bible interpretation. It was pretty much dismissed that, uh, hey, dispensationalists, they see all these things that are in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the second coming, and that's just... Uh, you know, that we, we see the destination of, of those things being the first coming. Really? Standing on the Mount of Olives and being split in two. First coming. Wow. The, the wolf lying down with the lamb and the lion eating straw. First coming. Really? Interesting. Amos chapter 9. First coming. The cities being rebuilt. Is Israel, the land of Israel being a blessing to all the Gentile nations that surround them and they're dwelling in peace and safety together. All those nations together. That's first coming. So, um, yeah, we definitely would disagree, as he said, and, uh, and it's really, really bad hermeneutics to say that all of this end times eschatological fulfillment is metaphorically fulfilled in the first coming. Uh, I mean, that, that's just really, really bad Bible interpretation. And so uh, that's where the differences are. It's in hermeneutics. It's not some system that we have to choose from the beginning, and then that system chooses De de determines our hermeneutic. That's not how it works. Our hermeneutic actually determines what our theological system is going to be. So um, I was pretty disappointed in uh, in these answers from Doctor Mister Sam Renahan, and uh, and, I, and I'm still listening to the interview. Like I said, I'm only about halfway through the whole thing, and uh, and it is very interesting. I am learning some things, but I thought this would be a good uh, opportunity to throw on a do theology reacts and uh, and kind of give you my two cents on that. So I hope that was helpful in some way, and hopefully uh, here soon you'll be hearing from both me and Ken on a new episode. We, we don't count the React episodes as full episodes because uh, this is literally, I was, I was listening to this in the shower this morning, and I came into my office and hit record for a quick 20, 25-minute thing. So... Um, these aren't, these aren't real episodes. The other episodes, we have to do a lot more preparation for our conversations and our interviews. So hope you enjoyed this, and soon enough, you'll get back into the real episodes from Do Theology. Thanks for listening.